1: This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined with three of the authors of Words That Matter How the News and Social Media Shaped the 2016 Presidential Campaign. This book was published by Brookings Press in 2020, it just came out, and is a fascinating, um, cooperative undertaking by faculty and experts at Georgetown, the University of Michigan, and at Gallup. Um, Today, we are joined by Michael Trugat um, and Jaron Budek and Jonathan Ladd, who are three of the authors. That also includes Leticia Bode, um, Frank Newport, Joshua Pasek, Lisa Singh, and Stuart Soroka, um, who are all authors of this really interesting and wide-ranging analysis of how we understand thinking about the media, and campaigns and narratives in particular during presidential campaigns so i'd like to introduce and welcome mike jaron and jonathan to the new books in political science podcast and i'm going to ask them to tell us a little bit about themselves as well as their co-authors this project and how it came into being
2: well thank you so much lily for having us on uh this is jonathan ladd Um, i can start by Telling a little bit about uh, this collaboration. And then maybe each of the three of us will talk a little bit about uh, this collaboration because um, uh, there's a story to tell. And it's been a really productive uh, collaboration, I think, and I think a little unusual uh, in academia to have this multi university collaboration with so many researchers. Um, so, about, I, I think it's approximately four years ago. Um, Some researchers at uh, University of Michigan and Georgetown University got together to try to think up projects of mutual interest uh, to try to better understand social media and how social media was changing things in social in the social sciences, Um, not just in political science, but projects we could do related to social related to social media um, uh, in the social sciences in general. Um, And I should say uh, that Robert Groves, who was a former Michigan uh, professor, uh, longtime Michigan professor and is now provost of Georgetown, played a big part in bringing us together. He uh, thought uh, it could be productive to bring researchers at both institutions together for this. Uh, And since then, we've been lucky Another thing that's, that's unusual and really fortunate about this group is we've been lucky to get very generous support so far from um, uh, Georgetown University and the University of Michigan for our, our projects. Uh, The research done um, for this book was really um, generously supported um, by grants from University of Michigan uh, and from Georgetown University. Um, And so... Our group, and and we are just a small portion, believe it or not, the group's even even bigger. Um, uh, The the group that we call ourselves, the Michigan uh, Georgetown Social Science and Social Media uh, Collaborative Research Group, Um, group, the list of co-authors on this book are people who study politics and how um, social media is changing politics. And we also have a separate group group that studies uh, different aspects of social media is particularly interested in how uh, parents learn information uh, and is, is, is made up of a, a number of um, psychologists. There's some overlap. Letitia um, Leticia is in both groups. Um, uh, but the, the other group is, is trying to understand parenting. and how people acquire information about parenting through social media. Um so uh, our group is involved in pol- trying to study politics and other aspects of how social media is changing society. Um, and this this part of the group started focusing on politics, and we we did this big data collection effort uh, in 2016. Um, and all this was was supported was, was we're lucky enough to be uh, was supported by our our two universities. Um, since then, we've been lucky enough to get outside funding for some of our from the uh, National Science Foundation for some of our continuing data collection efforts that we're doing in, in, in 2020. Um, so, so working together has involved, um, frequent conference, video conference calls. It has involved, um, regular, um, meetings in person several times a year where we meet either in Washington DC at Georgetown, uh, or in, uh, Ann Arbor at University of Michigan. Um, and, uh, Doing that to exchange ideas, uh, report on progress we've been making. Um, and uh, that's what enabled us to really pool our different expertise, different levels of expertise um, to produce a, a book like this, which looks at a lot of different aspects of the 2016 uh, campaign. Um, so that's like in, in broad overview what, what's been happening. I'll, I'll, I'll then um, of give uh, Jaron and, and Mike a turn to talk a little bit about, and I uh, a little bit about the collaboration, um, and a little, maybe, and maybe Mike also will talk a little bit about, uh, how the collaboration with Gallup, Are we start got connection with Gallup because the, the third partner really on this, um, uh, was Gallup. Um, uh, Jiren might also want, want to talk a little bit about, um, how this collaboration reached out to computer scientists, um, uh, since she's a computer scientist and, um, the uh because that's one that's one rarity I think there are a lot of big social science collaborati- collaborations, but we uh, uh with Jaron and, and Lisa Singh on our team have uh tried to pool and continuing with our newer projects tried to pool knowledge and learn by not just social science not not just social scientists in different disciplines but also um, what computer scientists are uh thinking about um so um maybe, maybe Jaren wants to add a little bit about sure. the collaboration.
3: yeah, uh, thank you, John. So yeah, I think I'm uh, one of the early the newer members of this team. I think I joined uh a year after uh, others. Uh, I joined when Mike reached out to me, and I'm really glad that he did. so uh, as John said, uh, my training is in computer science, but I uh self identify, if you will, as a computational social scientist. Um, So, which means that I apply uh, computer science techniques um, to study social science problems, especially uh, within the context of political communication. So this project, to me, uh, embodies the kind of right way of approaching computational social science, not in the way of, like, computer scientists applying her hammer to uh, problems, but uh, through collaborations across uh, social and and computer scientists, and uh, where we have these um, uh, sometimes overlapping but also um, complementary skills uh, and I um, I have really benefited from that in my research uh, in my interactions with my uh, co-authors uh, uh, in this in this project and I, I hope that it also uh, comes across and in the um, um, book as well um, so uh, right I think that's uh, just a little bit uh, for me I'm happy to elaborate more but um, uh, I think Mike uh, um, I was there from uh, the uh, you know, earlier times. And again, he, he was the one that, that got me involved in this project. So, uh, Mike, if, if you have uh, things to add, that would be great.
0: Thank you, Duran. I'm Mike Traugat. I'm a political scientist. I study campaigns and elections, among other things. And for several years, uh, I was a Gallup senior scientist. I interacted with them on both methodological issues and also some substantive issues. And in 2015, uh, around the time of uh, the beginning of the Republican debates, Gallup was interested in trying an approach uh, of asking people uh, what they had uh, heard, uh, read or seen about the candidates in the last couple of days And if they said they had heard something about a candidate, they asked an open-ended question, what was that? And uh, the responses to those open-ended questions became one of the basic elements of our book project. That uh, particular data collection in 2015 became a chapter in the book about the first uh, Republican debate, and and, uh, in, in retrospect, the emergence of Donald Trump. Gallup decided to continue this form of data collection into the general election campaign. And they uh, sampled 500 people at random uh, each day asking these questions uh, about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And by the time that that effort was completed, we had almost 60,000 uh, respondents in a sample uh, that answered these Four questions. We combine that with uh, large samples of tweets per day, and also content analysis of the news stream about the campaign. And these were, and we had also some data on Twitter from journalists who were covering the campaign. And these were the basic elements that uh, produced the raw materials that we turned into this book.
1: And, and you just answered the question that I was going to ask about explaining um, essentially the substance of, of the data that is the, is the structure uh, around the book itself or the, the backbone of the book. Um, so then I will take the three of you to the overarching question um, that drives the book and that is embedded also in the title, Words That Matter um and and what the book sort of talks about in terms of understanding um sort of the embedded narratives in in the campaign in 2016 um so i would love for you three to discuss essentially the the overarching idea of how the words matter and how the voters essentially the citizens receive information and, and sort of understand it.
2: Well, great. Uh, this is John Ladd again. Uh, let's take, uh, maybe we'll take that in turns. Um, and, but we'll all take a shot at it. Um, one of the things we wanted to do by collecting and analyzing the words and how those words came together, uh, in different information streams is to how to see how these information streams were similar and how they were different, right? So as Mike was saying, um, we got this uh, great data set from the partnership with Gallup, where um, we were asking 500 people every day during the whole campaign, um, starting uh, July 1st, all the way through election day, uh, what they had read, seen or heard about Donald Trump and what they had read, seen, or heard about Hillary Clinton, um, and uh, they were able to respond open ended. So that this ends as, as Mike mentioned, when you put all this together, this ends up being a huge rolling cross-sectional survey where people could report just what they were hearing, and and that ends up being you know a measure of what can people act, what are people actually absorbing and remembering, um, and then we com- can compare that with these other information streams. Um, uh, you know, what's in conventional newspapers, you know, compare it with uh, information, meaning the way measured has the, the words uh, analyzed together in, in conventional newspapers. What is the information flowing through social media um, uh, that we can measure? And then what would of that ends up being picked up by people and remembered by people? And we wanted to... S- see, you know, how that information flows, you know, how much are they are are the information in different types of media um, and uh what people remember the same, like like the are the different types of media giving the same information, covering the same topics um uh, and are people hearing it to the same degree? Um and to what degree are do we see differences? Uh you know, is what's on Twitter both in a random sample of all Twitter and in what journalists are writing on Twitter. Is that different than what you see in the news? And is that different than what people report hearing (laughs) and what people can remember and, and, and regurgitate back to you in an open-ended survey response? So we wanted to, we wanted to, uh, compare them. In fact, uh, they're quite, they're quite different. So in, in, you know, in brief, just a few differences, um, what people remember um, ends up being uh, a good deal more negative in tone, right? So um, uh, Twitter, you know, the content on Twitter is more negative than what's in newspapers. And what people recall is more negative than even what's on Twitter. Um, Another big difference is the prevalence of, which we haven't gotten to, but I'm sure we will talk more about because it's such a big theme in the book, is the prevalence of the uh, Hillary Clinton's email topic, um, which ends up being um, much more prevalent in people's recollections um, than we find in newspapers or uh, in or on social media um, so that's just a few that's just a few of the differences and seeing how these 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 streams of information are different um, is the commonalities and the differences was a key thing we examined in the book we wanted to and I think succeeded in in examining um in the book, um, so I'll, I'll give Jaren a uh, chance to talk about this.
3: Yeah, uh, thanks, John. So, right, so I think John spoke quite eloquently to the uh, to the uh, data that we have used. I think maybe something to point out is also uh, like what the motivation behind that is. So, uh, right, we see a very kind of interesting pattern. We're consuming more news online, and therefore there's just more ways of capturing that data of of that news production and consumption. And as a computer scientist, you know, that's exciting to me that we can gather and process these vast amounts of data. But there's also this blessing uh, is also sort of a curse in that um, the people are consuming news in increasingly more complex ways uh, right so it's hard to pinpoint exactly where they are getting the information that they are getting uh, and what kind of information is is, is, is sticking so I think that's uh, the diversity of the data that we have used uh, in our book um, especially the heard uh, seen or, or read question uh, by 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 Gallup uh, is meant to get at that right so basically uh, that uh, we we can look at uh the traditional news media we can look at journals what they're saying we can look at twitter we can look at what people remembered and the the tie that that brings all of these together are are the words and which is why uh the the book is is titled uh words that matter so um it, it, again it, maybe i'll talk a little bit from a computer science perspective so it, it, from a methodological perspective. Uh, it, it's a choice that we, that we made, right? That, that we are looking at things at the word level. So we could have looked at things using like topic models and, and so forth. Uh, but um, really uh, what we have seen as, as we uh, use uh, this, uh, this approach is we're able to find these very, I, I thought, like striking patterns of, of uh, the similarities, but also maybe more importantly, the, the differences between, between uh, these streams. So um, I think that's, that's uh, uh, what I you know, you know, have to, um, to um, say in this. In this maybe, uh, Mike, if you want to add more? Uh,
0: I'll add just a little bit, Jaren. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> On the social science side, we share a common interest in what we call uh, a media effect or media effects. That is, what is the consequence of exposure To uh, particular pieces of information. And in a traditional survey research context, the questionnaire would have contained measures, for example, about exposure to to which media and how often or how much attention uh, did you pay to a particular source. uh, And a somewhat faulty measure often of what do you remember from that exposure? In effect, through this project, we have created a new measure of a media effect, which is a self-reported a recollection of information, which is not attributable to a single source or a particular kind of uh, level of attention. Uh, When we ask people, have you heard, read, or seen anything about uh, Donald Trump in the last couple of days, this could include personal conversations at work, conversations with family and friends, exchanges of emails, uh, Twitter exchanges, and so on. So we are less interested, we were less interested in in the particular source and more interested in the content. And because the content uh, was captured in these open-ended survey responses first, um, the meaning of words that matter uh, was taken on through, as Jaren mentioned, topic analysis, which words were most frequently cited or used, and also through sentiment analysis, was there a valence? associated with particular uh, words and and phrases. So a lot of the book is organized around either particular topics from different sources or the sentiment of uh, these discussions or these recounted uh, kinds of information. And that is, I would say, the central theme that is present throughout the various chapters in the book. So I'll and- give it.
1: Go ahead. Um, I just I wanted to follow up on that because that is also where I found the book to be really fascinating in terms of um, again not only as you note the sort of new approach or sort measure of of getting the information and the information itself what it tells you um, but also um, what you all sort of understood as you were dissecting the various components, the threads of the, the study. So you have this massive data set, but you're also matching it to what is going on in social media and what's going on in the news media. And what I found to be interesting is, as you say, that there are sort of different things that came out of that, um, in particular the question of Hillary Clinton's emails. Um, which gets an entire chapter and is threaded throughout the book. And how is this understanding distinct from other aspects of information that people saw during the 2016 um, campaign?
2: Let me say something very briefly, and then I maybe will pass it off to to Mike to talk about this. Um, uh, Well, one th- this is one thing that got a lot of attention from the book and you know we were generating um, uh, word clouds and other kind of simple representations of what we we're getting in the rolling cross-sectional survey during the campaign and the press picked up uh, some of our pictures and and um, uh, some of those you know went viral to some extent and um, Hillary Clinton used, one of our word clouds from our from our rolling cross section in her book about the campaign, what happened, and so what, what struck a lot of people, I think, initially, even before we had we had written the book and really had a chance to even write about it, when people were just uh, seeing our figures, was how much people mentioned uh, email in those open ended in those open ended um, survey responses when they were asked, "What have you heard about um, heard read or seen?" I'm sorry about Hillary Clinton. Um, and it just dominated and, and in, in some ways it, it raises more questions than it answers. I think that's a good thing for a research project to do. And I think a lot of, we have, we have a lot of answers, but I think also the, the book raises as many questions as it answers, which is, you know, why was that so memorable to people? Um, and what ways is it, is it with that there are unorthodox channels that they were getting that message or was it just more memorable in people's minds for a variety of reasons you could hypothesize about, um, uh, but for whatever reason, it, it was. It, it dominated. And for whatever reason, no topic dominated mentions about Donald Trump in the same way. Um, instead, you know, topics about what people had seen, read or heard about Donald Trump would come and then go and not be mentioned. We mentioned, mentioned for a week or so, and then, and then it would go away. And we have a, we have a chapter about you know, how long um, uh, uh, events led things to be the focus of what people were hearing about Donald Trump and then how quickly they faded and they did fade. And then the, the email story never faded um, in what people were thinking uh, and recalling about uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, let me give uh, Mike a chance to talk about this.
0: Well, there were there were a lot of uh, novel aspects of this project that would be associated with the data sources that we used. We We had some Uh, initial hypotheses, but some things changed as we made observations in the data that were collected. Uh, And uh, there's a a particular chapter that was written by Josh Pasek about the life cycle of stories, uh, which was a comparison of um, mentions uh, in in the survey data and the uh attention in the news stream to those uh you know particular events and the 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 major finding from that was the shortness of the life cycle uh it for each particular event uh the, these are relatively important events in the campaign uh the public thought uh uh thought about these less over a shorter period of time than the news devoted coverage to them. But um, the findings about Clinton and her emails were a striking juxtaposition to that in the sense that uh, we found that in the topic analysis, emails or various manifestations of emails um, were persistent in every week of the campaign except one as the most cited topic. And the one week where that wasn't the most cited topic about Hillary Clinton was when she had her illness around the uh, day where the memorial services for Sem- September 11th were held. And uh, the, the emails were not a central uh, topic early in the campaign, But there were, uh, I mean, among Republicans, but there were a set of issues. Uh, She carried a lot of baggage uh, through the campaign that were associated with uh, her service first at the um, State Department, then the disappearance of some of the emails, then the FBI investigation in phase one, and then the FBI investigation in phase two. So she was never able to uh, escape from this uh, public acknowledgement of emails as a central theme. And of course, the valence or the sentiment associated with uh, email message was negative. It's important to point out that Trump and Clinton were two of the least popular Candidates to ever run for president of the United States, and while their visibility was high, uh, their their uh, favorability ratings never got above fifty percent uh, individually.
1: And and in that that sort of negative valence, as you say, is one of the things that sort of came out in the understanding of what people remember um in terms of the data that you are looking at. Can you speak a little bit more to this? Because like obviously we have, you know, decades now of negative campaigning. Um, but the question of, you know, how individuals report their understanding um, <clears throat> as opposed to just the ads that we see, um, seems to be again a sort of novel um piece of research that came out of this project.
2: Yeah, well, this was a novel thing that um, came out of this collaboration with Gallup. And um, Mike can talk a little bit, perhaps, about how you first conceptualized the question. I can I can report personally that um, once I heard the idea, I loved this, this idea because I've always been a big fan of open-ended questions. I, I used them in, in some of my previous work when I wanted to understand what people knew about, what people meant when they were saying they didn't have confidence in institutions, particularly the news media as an institution or about confidence in government and try to get people to expand on that in open-ended questions so we could get a sense of what these uh, classic but fairly vague survey questions actually meant. Um, But Mike, maybe you could talk about how you first conceptualized or thought of the the idea of asking questions like this.
0: Well, first of all, the credit has to be given to uh, Frank Newport and to Gallup. But this decision was made in the context of Gallup thinking about not uh, conducting trial heat surveys all through the campaign, uh, asking who was ahead. If, you, uh, if the election were held today, would you vote for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton? So they were interested in uh, developing uh, newsworthy content, content that people would be interested in. Uh, outside of the trial heat question. And so through the experimental research in 2015, and then the extension of it into the convention period in the summer of 2016, uh, this seemed to be a, um, a, a way to get at this. And our collaboration with them uh, b- built upon the work that Jonathan described that Georgetown and Michigan had been doing together um, developed on the basis of uh, our ability to produce content that would be consumable by the public and also by the news media from these very large uh, quantities of data. And maybe Jaren could say something about what the computer scientists brought to this in terms of uh, visualizations of different kinds and how we dealt with large quantities of data.
3: Um, Sure. Uh, Thank you, Mike. So, uh, right. So I guess, uh, as as, uh, Mike uh, has mentioned, uh, we're working with uh, vast amounts of data, right? So it's coming from uh, not only traditional news uh, media content, perhaps it's in a manageable scale, uh, uh, but uh, we're also... Kind of make using um, uh, Twitter uh, content uh, tweets that are shared by people, as well as um, the content of the URLs that are shared uh, in these tweets. So this fundamentally requires uh, uh, scalable approaches uh, to uh, to um, analyze uh, 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 such such content. So that's that's I think where the um, the value of this interdisciplinary. uh, effort uh comes into uh, play and i think it is also uh as i mentioned before not necessarily just like kind of the hammer of the computer scientists or the fanciest approaches to 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 throw at the problem uh right so uh, uh but uh focusing on uh, the the, uh, the um the approach with the um most impact um so i would say Kind of as a computer scientist, I don't think that we came in with our I know exactly what 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 to do uh, kind of a uh, uh, um, perspective, but really uh, through uh, uh, communication. Uh, uh, with uh, with co-authors, where, uh we were able to identify that, uh, for instance, uh, with the topic modeling, uh, going back to that topic, we so could use latent Dirichlet allocation and so forth to to uh, uh, to handle these problems. But we were seeing that uh, a some, somewhat simpler method of basically experts uh, coming up with a topic word list to define topics was a better way to to uh, describe them. So it really is a Kind of back and forth, and, and a in and an interdisciplinary um, uh, approach. I, and just going back to, I think your question, Lily, about uh, the um, um, uh, negativity. I think that again it ties back to this um, reality that we're living in, which is that again people are not necessarily kind of consuming uh, the uh, news directly from uh, news um, traditional news outlets, right? So we're, if you look at the traditional news outlets. Um, 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 depiction of, of the campaigns and the uh, and, uh, uh, candidates, yes, they were uh, uh, negative, but not nearly as negative as Twitter. So that's already telling you maybe that's a level uh, of, of filtering that's uh, uh, maybe a, a playing a role there, but even more so for the kinds of things that people are remembering. So um, that, again, uh, the highlights the importance of not focusing on, on uh, one data source, but uh, looking at various different ways that people are exposed to information.
1: and And I'm gonna ask a, a follow up to that one as well in terms of um, the the way that you essentially unpeeled the onion in in the book in terms of looking at what is being reported in traditional media, and then having an analysis of what is going on as much as one can. Understand what's going on in social media, how the stories and the information that we read um, in a newspaper or see in a nightly news program, and what, as you say, is sort of uh, um, uh, sort of enunciated more more negatively, possibly in Facebook um, stories or that people are passing around or on Twitter. Can you talk about how this part of the the study was sort of put together and and what it showed you more clearly?
2: Well, I'll start by just saying I think there are two um types of things I we wanted to understand how they and how they were related in different the streams, right? So like we wanted to see the relation as you mentioned, Lily, like when we want to see the re- relationship between um sw- what was on social media, and and what was in uh, conventional media, as measured in a series of newspapers, and what people actually heard, um, as as measured in our big uh, rolling cross sectional survey, and um, we wanted to understand both how they how they related to each other and how they were different. And we, we measured both the words and the topics uh, and also misinformation. Um, and so, you know, one of the things we wanted to know is why. And one, one of the things we wanted to puzzle about is kind of why um, the uh, different different streams of information might might uh, be different, you know, how they may influence each other, how people might hear things on social media or in conventional media, and then remember them, be able to report them in surveys. Um, we also wanted to see how, how w- whether misinformation was flowing, um, as particularly whether, you know, the, the uh, there was a lot of misinformation in social media. So I wanted to give um, uh, uh, Jaron a chance to talk about that, because she did a lot of great analysis of whether people were being exposed to uh, misinformation, false information uh, on social media. So maybe she wants to take a shot at at talking about that or, or the project uh, big picture.
3: Yeah. Thank you, John. So, right. So I I relate to what you're saying exactly. And your question, Lily, so we're, we're seeing these differences. One of the reasons why we decided to look at uh, this misinformation or disinformation was that we are seeing this discrepancy uh, between kind of what the journals are talking about, what news media are talking about, and what t- people on Twitter are talking about. So one potential way to think about that would be that, oh, they're all sharing misinformation and they're very different, and that's what's happening there. Um, so, and that's a kind of a, I guess at least coming to the project, valid concern because people were writing these, at these news article pieces that were saying that fake news had uh, outperformed uh, traditional news uh, on on social media. Uh, So we haven't exactly found that, actually. So we did find that in aggregate, uh, traditional news media did outperform uh, these low-quality news producers uh, um, or fake news producers uh, on on Twitter uh, in aggregate. But if you look at a kind of a random article, random fake news article versus random traditional news article, their performance, if you will, in terms of how many people shared them were quite comparable, right? So that's quite concerning. We have on the one hand traditional news outlets that are, you know, led by um, journalists with uh, with um, uh, you know the right training. On the other hand, we have these so-called the news producers that uh, are able to produce content that is uh, getting this visibility. But again, uh, because we have this kind of larger larger production by uh, traditional news outlets, in aggregate they were luckily able to uh, at least, uh, as far as our analysis is concerned, outperform big news. But we do see quite uh, a striking um, kind of, I would say, patterns. So for instance, if you look at the prevalence over time of like, if you look at on a given day, what fraction of, of uh, news content that was shared was coming from traditional news versus these low called news producers, uh, that prevalence, that, that time series, if you look at that time series, you see that it is quite attuned to uh, the uh, campaign dynamics in general. So uh, what's happening is whenever there is a, a kind of increase in uh, people's favorability for Clinton compared to Trump, that's led by an increase in fake news production and consumption. So um, right, this is only correlation, obviously, but it's saying that uh, it seems that this production and consumption was responding to something that was happening with uh, with uh, the, the campaign. So that's, again, um, I would say concerning, especially if you look at future campaigns, something uh, to to definitely uh, look out for. And when we look at the content again, uh, we see this asymmetry between the two candidates. This is again something that is uh, across all our our chapters. I would say right. So that the, the the story, the the um, the content about uh, 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 Clinton and Trump always show of, almost always show. Uh, um, different patterns. So here, again, we're seeing, if you look at the words that were uttered by um, um, uh, the uh, Gallup interviewees uh, and tie that to content from traditional and fake news uh, outlets, and for each word have, we have a natural language processing uh, approach to assign a measure of fakeness, if you will, uh, to each word. So you would have a word like Benghazi uh, Foundation would have a high... Uh, fakeness versus kind of votes and and campaign would have low, for instance. So if you then tie that to the things that people said in the interviews, you see that for Trump, people are remembering things that are more or less aligned with traditional news. But for Clinton, uh, one, people are remembering things that are more aligned with fake news. uh, And there's a fragmentation between Republican and and, and Democrats in that Republicans are remembering more stuff that's, that's uh, aligned with, uh, with, um, uh, fake news. So that's again, not saying that people are necessarily um, 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 consuming uh, fake news. It might be that fake news is producing content that's more memorable, right? And and um, especially for uh, for uh, Republicans, uh, but it still is concerning that it's showing that maybe traditional news outlets were unable to. Uh, control the narrative, if you will. And we don't necessarily know why, right? Because we only know the content. We don't know what channels necessarily people consumed uh, that information, but it, it definitely, um, is leading to kind of, I think that we should be looking out, looking at this, uh, kind of, uh, content and, and research questions and, in, in future campaigns as well.
1: And so I wanted to, to then ask, um, a question. This is a, a a big study and a really thoughtful book that, you know, again, has many contributing authors coming at it from different perspectives. Um, But I often like to ask my authors, and I think you've implied some of the answer to this question, what was surprising with regard to the research? Were there outcomes that you sort of thought might come and then you were confirmed in them or Was there something that really jumped out um, in terms of seeing the data compiled and then analyzing it?
2: Um, I'm happy to go first uh, and then we'll we'll each take a shot at this. Um, I mean, the boring answer is that I was surprised with the same thing everybody else was surprised about. Uh, while we started putting up our first figures during the 2016 campaign, you know, I, I was surprised how much um, uh, the email story dominated what people remembered about Clinton, but no similar story dominated what people remembered about Trump. I get, and it's I guess it's really the contrast between Trump and Clinton that makes it so surprising. Um, in that and maybe you could take it, think about it from the Trump side, right? Is that um, it appears to be the case possibly because there's so much to remember about Trump (laughs) um, that it's hard for one, anything to any one thing to dominate, at least in 2016, like during the campaign in 2016. So that contrast that, that no story negative or positive, but, but particularly there's no, there's no negative story stuck to Trump. Um, And I mean, That I think surprised a lot of people and I got to admit it, it surprised uh, me as well. And the second smaller thing is that, that we didn't find that in, in, on Twitter and social media. Um, One of the things we're doing, and, and I should, I should mention, we are collecting data uh, for 2020. Our group is doing, doing it again, and we're doing a more thorough data collection job in media content. Um, And we are, even than we did last time, um, and uh, we're trying to collect more where we think, um, uh, well, well, we're trying to collect data on cable news um, and we're trying to collect data on YouTube and some data on uh, conservative talk radio um, to try to see if the, some of the things we picked up in the, in the open-endeds about what people heard and remembered um, is, is coming through there or, or not. And that's a question we'd be able to answer after we get our 2020 data back. Uh, Sharon, do you want to take a shot at this?
3: Sure. Uh, I guess I don't know to what degree this will be a restatement of what John said, but I think it was surprising to me uh, the um, kind of consistency of the the stories that emerge from uh, these chapters. As as uh, your, as we have mentioned, and you have also mentioned, Lily, that this is kind of a large uh, body of, of co-authors. So the way that we we kind of um, Um, tackle this is, if you will, is that like each person sort of was like, okay, I'll take the first stab at a certain question. And then the fact that people all came back and this, again, the concept of uh, emails, concept of this asymmetry uh, between uh, the two um, candidates was an interesting um, uh, surprise uh, to me. Uh, So I I guess I would say that's the one uh, kind of high level thing that, uh, that popped out for me.
0: I would add just a couple of comments. One of them is uh, the argument could be made that Hillary Clinton was perhaps the most experienced and best qualified candidate to run for president based upon her prior work in in government. And there was a lot of policy content to her campaign, almost none of which came through to the electorate. And so the interesting story about emails, uh, and the prominence of emails is how it swamped everything else. Uh, And then I would add that uh, many people ask us about uh, how the findings of this work relate to the current campaign about to get underway. And I think that there are uh, two potentially interesting themes One of them is about the impact of foreign influence, uh, to which we don't really have a firm answer about the 2016 2016 campaign, uh, based upon either the Mueller report or the various investigations in uh, Congress. But there are suggestions already that there are foreign actors getting themselves involved in the 2020 campaign. And the other issue is about the role of social media, because it's pretty clear because of the pandemic that we're not going to have a regular kind of campaign that involves large rallies, a lot of handshaking with uh, voters, and that the social media influence in the campaign is going to be greater than in the past. Perhaps that was inevitable because of the growth of the use in social media, But in the context of standard uh, campaign techniques and the fact that they're going to be very limited in 2020, it'll be interesting to see how uh, and to what extent social media plays a major role in the campaign between Donald Trump and Joe Biden.
1: And, and that was, of course, leading me to my next question, because in the conclusion, you all discuss the concern with regard to um, the sort of prevalence of fake news um, that comes through social media, the, the way that bots and so forth can push stories and understandings and ideas, um, and that this is something that you saw from the analysis that you think we should pay attention to and guard against. Um, What is, what is the potential for that in 2020? Michael, as you said that there's likely to be more social media because of the pandemic and because of the current situation. Um, But how do we sort of draw from what you've all learned in this book to think about what's going to be happening in the media environment that we live in.
0: Well, I would say that one, one uh, important issue or dimension to track will be sentiment Uh, because we know based upon 2016 and also our observations of the Trump presidency, uh, about his reliance on uh, negativity and attacks. And uh, the, the social media uh, arena l- lends itself to that. There are things that have taken place in the last few weeks and the last few days, for example, with Twitter uh, posting comments about uh, the president's use of Twitter and specific tweets in particular that I think are important things to uh, watch as the campaign develops.
3: Right, and follows um,
0: uh, social media more closely.
3: Yeah, so I guess uh, that's a that's an excellent point, Mike. That, that the platforms are uh, the uh, the point uh, that you make about Twitter is really a good example of how platforms are really important players here, and really uh, the actions that they take are going to uh, shape uh, the uh, conversations that are going to happen in these spaces. So again, as a kind of computer scientist, I, I, I wish there was a kind of technical solution here uh, to be able to uh, handle these kinds of questions. But unfortunately, it's not a technical uh, problem. So it's a socio-technical problem, and it's more socio than, than technical, honestly. Uh, so um, so uh, the, we're, we're building on basically years of polarization observed in the U.S., especially effective polarization, That might allow you to believe the wildest thing uh, about the other person across across the aisle uh, and people's existing tendencies uh, to seek information that confirms their prior held beliefs. It's just that these platforms are making these easier uh, for for people to to engage in. Uh, So um, I think that what we can do as researchers is uh, really uh, gather these data, uh, model, uh, measure, and report on the problems that we see, and maybe estimating the potential impact of of different interventions. And I I hope that the, the role that news uh, the uh, you know platforms play is whatever interventions seem to work that they'll be able to scale scale that up because we will not be able to uh, able to do that. So uh, it's hard to predict how, how the uh, platforms will react how the parties will react to that uh, but uh, we're seeing you know the even the last week the you know, big shift uh, from from Twitter is uh, showing that really anything is is possible
1: and and I wanted to then sort of follow up one more time and and you've already talked a little bit about what you're doing. With regard to the 2020 analysis, that there is ongoing analysis. Um, this question of sentiment is key, um, as it also came out from the 2016 analysis. Um, but in terms of sort of growing the project from the 2016 project, um, what is it that you you all are doing? Um, with this collaboration uh, that is, you know, sort of building on the 2016 and what we might be paying attention to in 2020.
2: Well, let me start by just saying, I think uh, the, when thinking about 2020, we started by wanting to better uh, address this key puzzle from 2016, which was, did people remember uh, the email story when thinking about Hillary Clinton and were they able to recall that in the open-ended surveys so much more because um, it was more memorable for whatever reason, either because they knew so much more about her as a political figure or had so much more you know, prior uh negative schema that are easily, more easily activated from decades of being in the midst of partisan warfare, um, or because it's easier to activate negative stereotypes about women candidates perhaps, or whatever reason it, was it that it wasn't that really in the media, but it was just more, those, there were just more memorable, or was it because it actually was in media stream we weren't measuring very well? Right, so we've been trying to expand by measuring more sources of more types of media. Um, uh, This time, uh, not just newspapers, but cable television. We're monitoring in 2020, Um, uh, as well as Twitter. Again, we're monitoring, uh, uh, and as well as we planned to um, monitor what people uh, hear using open-ended surveys. uh, Again. Um, And we want to also monitor, um, uh, have some measure of conservative talk radio content. So I think we were, um, in in thinking about 2020, um, we want to see if the open-endeds really are a reflection of media, but you just have to measure all the media people are getting now or whether the what people get in these open-ended, we've discovered is that people remember things in a in a very disproportionate to what's actually in the media, <laughs> and if and and that's a fascinating finding. If we keep getting that repeatedly over a number of uh, elections
3: right and I, I might add just very quickly for the other types of uh, media that we're looking at we're also hoping to expand on uh the different types of social media platforms that we're we're looking at so uh youtube is as being um used quite a lot for uh, consuming political information so that's one other platform we're, we're looking at um uh, some of the co-authors are uh in, in, involved in the social science one um um, um, um collaboration and through that have uh, um, access to uh, Facebook public pages uh, that that, are, uh, uh, that can be used in, in research. So we are also trying to expand not only uh, so on, on the social media side moving beyond just just Twitter as well.
0: Well, I would say in response to your question Lily, the, the most important thing is that the team is still together and functioning well. Uh, which (laughs) is a leg up on the study of the campaign. But one thing that's uh, become of increasing interest outside of the contest between Trump and uh, Biden is uh, a set of systemic questions about the integrity of our electoral system, and the validity of the results of the election, uh, beginning with uh, the current discussion about uh, voting by mail under the conditions of the pandemic. But I'm sure there'll be other, uh, I I guess I would describe them as attacks on uh, the American political system and, uh, and also the way in which we elect our leaders. And we should be able to look at those issues as well in our 2020 analysis.
1: And so I'm hoping that the three of you or some other um, configuration of the authors of the 2020 analysis will come and speak to me about it um, once it comes out. It'll be our pleasure. Great.
0: (laughs) Thank
2: you for Um, the chat talk to you today.
1: Um, it is my pleasure to be hosting Michael Trugat, um, Jaron Budek, and Jonathan Ladd, who are three of the many authors of Words That Matter, How the news, media, news and Social Media Shaped the 2016 Presidential Campaign. This book is published by Brookings Press and came out in 2020, I assume it's available at Brookings website any brick and mortar stores that might have specials on this that any of you want to shout out
0: Well the books are, are just coming out in the in the past week I'm not sure which stores they're in there are the usual online sources as well Of course
2: <laughs> Yeah it could, could be they will we will find out but it is hot off the presses released this week we are recording. So release okay. the last week of May.
1: All right. Um, so thank you, Mike, Jaron, and Jonathan for joining me today on the New Books Network to talk about words that matter. Thank you. Thanks you so much. Thanks.